I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and welcome to episode 28 of my Crisis to Opportunity podcast. This episode is the last of four in which I explore with you the importance of mindset in how you respond to a crisis. The topic for this episode is comfort to risk. We as humans are wired for comfort. In primordial times, comfort was equated with survival. Whether it was fear, exhaustion, or pain, any discomfort triggered our primitive brain to ensure that we acted to return to that comfort. Not surprisingly then, it's natural for us to seek out safety, security, and comfort when confronted with the uncertainty and threat of a crisis in modern times. This is our attempt to regain a sense of equilibrium and minimize the impact of the crisis on us. From the writer Roy T. Bennett, it's only after you've stepped outside of your comfort zone that you begin to grow, change, and transform. Yet, no matter how instinctive a reaction it might be, is seeking comfort in the face of a modern-day crisis really the best way to respond? I would suggest not likely. Whereas returning to the status quo was the goal during our cave person days, today's crises rarely allow us to return to normalcy in the short term. Now, I'm not suggesting that you take irresponsible risks that have a better chance of increasing the severity of the crisis. Instead, it's important to take appropriate risks that may improve the outcome of the crisis. These risks are important because crises cause you to confront a situation that is out of the norm and outside of your comfort zone. Therefore, seeking comfort by staying within the norms of your regular life may very well be ineffective in finding a resolution. Let's first explore comfort more deeply. We all seek comfort because, well, it's comfortable and it feels good. Comfort tells us that we're safe and secure. We find comfort both within and outside of ourselves. As I've discussed previously, we do what we can to make our lives as stable as possible. Externally, we seek a life that's familiar, predictable, and controllable. We establish daily habits and routines, spend time with the same people, and engage in activities that provide us with maximum comfort. Internally, we do our best to maintain a psychological and emotional equilibrium that fosters our comfort. We think agreeable thoughts, do things that generate enjoyable emotions, eat aptly named quote-unquote comfort food, and do meditation, yoga, and different types of exercise that promote physical relaxation. In this stability, we find comfort. Yet, too much comfort creates inertia, stagnation, and inflexibility. Our ability to think on our feet and be agile declines. With excessive comfort, we, we become attached to pleasant thoughts and emotions and lose touch with our ability to positively respond to the unpleasant internal machinations that are an inevitable part of life. We also lose our ability to be resilient and to adjust to the ever-changing world of the 20th century. Developing new skills, thinking flexibly, and adjusting to circumstances requires growth. In order to grow, you must do things differently. This means you must get out of your comfort zone. Therefore, without discomfort, there can be no growth. In addition, avoiding discomfort leaves you ill-equipped for the massive discomfort you will feel when a crisis strikes. From a Chinese proverb, pearls don't lie in the shoreline. If you want one, you must dive for it. Despite the urging of millions of years of evolution, I would suggest that acting or not acting to stay comfortable is not a productive aspiration because crises are naturally disruptive and uncomfortable. 
Although yes, some degree of stability can be regained during a crisis. The reality is that complete comfort during a crisis is neither possible nor advisable. As the saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. And in the case of a crisis, those measures meaning having the willingness to make yourself uncomfortable and to take suitable risks. Now let's explore risk in more depth. Let me preface this discussion of risk by saying that I'm not suggesting that you take ill-advised risks. These include things like gambling with your retirement money in the hope of getting snake eyes, or quitting your job when you have no prospects for finding a new job and no rainy day fund. I also don't mean taking risks for which you're unprepared, you have little chance for success, or the consequences of failure are dire. That's not taking risks. That's being stupid. The dictionary defines risk as a situation in which you expose yourself to danger. Back in primitive times, our ancestors were at physical risk from rival tribes, predatory animals, starvation, and disease simply because they were alive. In the 21st century, though, the risks we take are usually less physically risky, unless you choose to participate in activities that have inherent thrills, such as skiing, mountain biking, or bungee jumping. Clearly, some level of risk is essential for success in almost every aspect of life. A few examples include attempting to win an Olympic gold medal, starting a tech company, or simply telling someone, I love you. If you don't take risks, you won't improve, grow, or likely accomplish any of your goals. And taking some risks are often necessary to achieve a satisfactory resolution to a crisis. From the motivational speaker and writer, Dennis Waitley, life is inherently risky. There's only one big risk you should avoid at all costs and that is the risk of doing nothing. So the question is, to risk or not to risk? Hopefully, I've convinced you of the necessity of taking reasonable risks in response to a crisis. When your world has been rocked by a crisis, deciding to take risks is a simple but not easy choice. It's a simple choice because most of us would rather take risks and give ourselves a chance of a positive resolution to a crisis over playing it safe and comfortable and leaving the outcome to chance. At the same time, it's not an easy choice because taking risks introduces us to the possibility of failure. As we know, no one likes to fail, particularly when so much is on the line in a crisis. It's also not easy because there are a variety of powerful psychological and emotional forces that hold you back from taking risks. Here are some of them. Fear of failure. You won't take a risk if you're afraid to fail. Fear of blame. You feel at fault for the crisis. Helplessness. You feel that you have no control over the crisis. Lack of confidence. You don't believe you're capable of taking the risk. And doubt. You don't believe that the risks will be rewarded. At the heart of risk-taking is the willingness to accept that it may not turn out as you hope, but the consequences of inaction are more likely to be greater than those of taking action. Additionally, risk-taking involves recognizing that you rarely end up worse off than you were before even though a risk might not pay off. Also, the nature of risks means that there is a possibility of failure. At the same time, risk-taking also increases your chances of success. There's no reason not to take risks because there rarely is success with inaction. Now, before we dive more deeply into how risk-taking can help you overcome a crisis, let me reframe it in a way that you may find a little bit more palatable. When we use the word risk, our tendency is to focus on its negative aspects and what can go wrong. 
What I really think you're doing is opportunity taking. This means that you see the prospect of something good happening and you're willing to embrace that opportunity. In fact, herein lies a significant distinction between a crisis mentality and an opportunity mindset. In the former case, the emphasis is on what can go wrong and be lost, while the attention is on what can go right and what can be gained in the latter case of an opportunity mindset. Despite this change in orientation toward a risk, I will continue to call it risk-taking because opportunity-taking is kind of unfamiliar and a bit awkward. Plus, now that you have this new perspective, you'll be able to make the change mentally without having to see the words opportunity-taking. An unknown quote, it's better to make errors of commission than errors of omission. I want you to think of risk-taking as a lifestyle choice. Risk-taking as a lifestyle choice is also a skill. The chances are that it will be more difficult to take risks when a crisis hits if you weren't a risk-taker in your pre-crisis life. With this in mind, it's easy to see how it's actually healthy to practice risk-taking in your life before a crisis arises. If you can make taking risks a part of who you are, then risk-taking in response to a crisis will be much easier to do. You can experiment with taking small-scale risks in your work, with your family and friends, and in your avocations. They don't have to be big risks with significant upsides or downsides, like a major life change. Rather, any risks will help you gain experience in taking risks. For example, you could ask someone out on a date if you're single, try a new hobby, or travel to a part of the world you wouldn't have visited normally. Frequent practice in risk-taking increases your willingness, confidence, and comfort in doing so in the future, particularly when faced with a crisis. From boxing legend Muhammad Ali, he who is not courageous enough to take risks will accomplish nothing in life. Now the question is how to take risks. Risk-taking isn't something you should do as a knee-jerk reaction, and it shouldn't be spontaneous when you're emotional or when you're in a hurry. Risks that you take under those conditions are usually driven by our primitive instincts, emotions, and reactions, and rarely end well because they tend to be misguided when confronting modern-day crises. Again, those risks may have worked back in response to a crisis in ancient times when it was immediate and urgent. But as we've talked about in previous podcasts, today's crises are seldom resolved in such a cut-and-dried way. Given that a crisis will be of some significance in your life, and that any action you take will have consequences, taking risks should occur at the end of a very intentional process. Risks should be taken after careful analysis, thoughtful deliberation, and conscious decision-making. They're a purposeful end to a calculated means. Any risks should be part of a well-thought-out plan for combating the crisis you face. To that end, you can follow a 10-step procedure to help you arrive at a risk that is worth taking in response to a crisis. Number one, gather all relevant information. Number two, identify all options. Number three, list the benefits and costs of each option. Number four, assess your capabilities and readiness. Number five, weigh the likelihood of success. Number six, consider the consequences of failure. Number seven, ask whether you're willing and capable of accepting those consequences of failure. Number eight, get feedback from others. Number nine, make a decision. And number 10, commit fully to the decision. 
Of course, you don't want to constantly take risks during a crisis. That would simply be adding unnecessary stress and discomfort to an already distressing experience. Depending on the immediacy and severity of the crisis, its probable cause, and the degree of control you have over its events, there's a time and a place for taking risks and for remaining prudent. From the American poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, Don't be too timid and squeamish about your actions. All life is an experiment. The more experiments you make, the better. I would also suggest there's no time like the present to take risks. Now, admittedly, it never feels like the right time to take risks, particularly when a crisis occurs. And as I discussed earlier, there are risks to taking risks, and those risks may not be rewarded right away. In other words, risks can take time to reach fruition, and you may experience short-term setbacks along the way. Additionally, you may struggle at first after taking a risk. Your confidence may suffer, and you may actually question whether risk-taking is the right path. You might say to yourself, gosh, maybe I should just play it safe during these tough times. The problem is that the safety that may have worked when your life was normal may very well not work in a crisis, because crises aren't normal in any way, shape, or form. From the noted educator Margaret Spellings, if all you ever do is all you've ever done, then all you'll ever get is all you've ever got. And when it comes to a crisis, you don't want to get all you've ever got. Rather, your effort shouldn't be devoted to where you are now in the crisis, but to where you want to be at the conclusion of the crisis. As I've discussed previously in this podcast, the real risk of taking risks is that they may not be rewarded. The magnitude of the crisis and severity of its potential consequences can lead you to be overly focused on the costs and consequences of those risks. This fixation increases the chances that you will remain in a crisis mentality and even rely on a threat instinct that I described in a much earlier podcast, which drives you to protect yourself from the threat of the risk's failure. As a result, you become risk-averse and are less likely to take the risks that may actually facilitate a positive resolution to the crisis. Moreover, even if you do get yourself to take a risk that you deem reasonable and necessary, it may not pay off because you're unlikely to commit fully to it when you're feeling threatened. When you assume an opportunity mindset, you see taking appropriate risks as a challenge to pursue, not a threat to avoid. With this challenge response, you will be receptive to taking risks. This approach allows you to commit fully to your choice and increases the chances that your risk-taking will pay off. Finally, you may still think that taking risks in a crisis is risky, but the reality is that not taking risks can be equally risky. In your effort to resolve a crisis, doing the safe and comfortable thing may not get you where you want to go. Similarly, there is also no certainty if you take risks. However, crises are so far outside the normal of daily life that acting as you typically would in your daily life will not likely be effective in a crisis. In fact, you often give yourself a lot better chance of overcoming the crisis when you take risks and step outside of the stability and comfort of what's familiar. So when you look at it that way, taking risks in a crisis isn't as risky as you might think. From Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones that you did do. So throw off the bowlines, sail away from the safe harbor, Catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover. Yes, taking risks is an uncertain endeavor, 
That's the very nature of risks. First, you don't know whether you will actually be able to take the risks you need to get a desired outcome. You also don't know whether those risks will bear fruit, even with the best of intentions, thoughtful planning, and significant effort. No one, not even your family, friends, or experts related to the crisis can foresee what will happen if you take a risk. So there's going to be a fear of the unknown. Can you take the risk and will it pay off? Therefore, any risk you take must be a leap of faith because it's uncertain. A leap of faith involves taking action when there is little assurance or certainty that the desired outcome will occur. The leap of faith begins with the conviction that only by getting out of your comfort zone and taking risks will you have any chance of positively resolving a crisis. While this can be somewhat exciting, it can also be pretty darn scary. To help you fully understand the challenge of taking a leap of faith in a crisis, let me use an analogy from the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones is in search of the Holy Grail and is following a map that leads him along a treacherous path. Near the end of his journey, Jones comes to a seemingly bottomless chasm, across from which is the door to the Holy Grail. There's no apparent bridge across this abyss. Yet the map shows a picture of a man stepping into the void and a message telling him to take a leap of faith that will enable Jones to traverse the gap. Mustering his courage and choosing to take an enormous risk, Jones takes that leap of faith. He jumps and finds that there is an invisible bridge that he can walk across to seize the Holy Grail. Against the direst of consequences if he was wrong, that is to say, plummeting to his death, Jones had the faith to choose the risky path that led him to the successful conclusion of his quest. Similarly, you must have the strength of your conviction and belief in the value of taking risks to take a leap of faith and discover your own holy grail, which in your case might be a positive resolution to your crisis. The leap of faith begins with an acknowledgement of the severity of the crisis and its potential consequences. You must then determine that inaction or a safe path forward is far riskier. The next step is to have faith that you can affect the necessary change in response to the crisis. The leap of faith involves having a basic belief in yourself and your capabilities. You must also have the belief that good things will happen if you take judicious risks. It's important to recognize that some misgivings are a normal part of the process. You can never be 100% sure that things will work out the way you want. If there weren't doubts, then it wouldn't require a leap of faith. Further, it's paramount that you understand that this leap of faith is not blind faith. Rather, you take the time to respond to the crisis through risks that are informed by a lifetime of experience, knowledge, and skills, as well as extensive resources, such as family, friends, and other forms of support that you can use to bolster your efforts. From the American naturalist, John Burroughs, leap and the net will appear. I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and thanks for listening to episode 28 of my Crisis to Opportunity podcast. And be on the lookout for episode 29 in the near future.